Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. The program stipulates Isaiah 9, 1-7. But on studying a little further and meditating a little longer, I decided to enlarge the passage. We're beginning at chapter 8, verse 11, to chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah 8, verse 11, to chapter 9, verse 7. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. We must remind ourselves of the historical context. We are in the 8th century before Christ, toward the end of it, the low 700s. Judah is being threatened by two regional powers, Ephraim and Syria. But beyond that, there is the threat of the regional superpower, Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria, which was a powerful bunch and eventually controlled much of the northeastern parts of the Mediterranean world. They were tempted to make an alliance with one of the regional superpowers in order to get some security from the more immediate powers. God kept saying, don't do that. Trust the Lord God himself. Don't build your foreign policy on, on what you calculate to be to your material and military advantage. Trust me. And Judah herself, where Jerusalem is located, though materially prosperous, was wallowing in various sins, religious and social. So what we find in our text that I've just read, 8.11 to 9.7, is a remarkable contrast a divide in the road, either darkness and gloom, chapter 8, verses 11 to 22, or light and hope. And the contrast is sharp. In 8, 11 to 22, we read at the end, verse 22, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. On the other hand, 9-1, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, etc. And now, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So we focus, first of all, then, on the darkness and gloom. Chapter 8, verses 11 to 22 this section focuses on two massive sins. First, fearing what is fickle and feeble. That's the first massive sin. A sin that rears its head today as well. Fearing what is fickle and feeble. And then we shall see the second sin is trusting what is futile and false before we, we come to Jesus himself and the dawning of the new covenant. So, first, fearing what is fickle and feeble. Verse 11, 
this is what the Lord says. That is, probably pulling together the previous verses and introducing the next verse. This is what the Lord says to me, the prophet, with his strong hand upon me. That's a prophetic utterance that you find sometimes in the Old Testament. Ezekiel uses it as well. The hand of the Lord was strong upon me and so on. It's a way of saying that in this particular oracle, in this particular revelation, the intensity of the experience, the intensity of the inspiring power of God himself by his spirit is so strong that um, uh, he, he, he feels as if God's hand is pressing down upon him. The burden of the warning to Isaiah is summarized in 11b. Warning me not to follow the way of this people. And in particular, that's teased out in verses 12 to 15. Don't follow the way of this people. This is what God is now saying to Isaiah. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. So what is this conspiracy that is frightening the people but is not supposed to frighten the prophet? What is it? A fifth column siding with Syria and Ephraim, a conspiracy in some sort of political sense? A coalition with Assyria, the regional superpower and its massive Hundreds of thousands of troops. More likely, the reference is general. It's an approach to events, an explanation of events that simply leaves God out. The analysis is all political. And so bad things that happen are simply the result of a conspiracy which we try to counteract with our own plans and conspiracies. When things go wrong, how easy it is to become panicky, to develop paranoia. And then we act on our paranoia. And of course, we do that sort of thing today too, don't we? We see on all kinds of social indexes the culture heading in the wrong direction, so we perceive. Here in Northern Ireland, the laws are changing, it appears, on abortion on homosexual marriage, on transgenderism. The laws are changing in many, many fronts, and, and it's possible to analyze the entire thing politically. It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy of this group or that group. But, verse 12, do not live your life in fear of what others fear. Do not fear what they fear, we read. Do not dread it. They cannot see God's hand in events at all. Your response, by contrast, is found in verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. That is, you are to sanctify God in your own heart. To sanctify God is to demonstrate in words and deeds that he is high and lifted up. God is different. Not to sanctify him in your heart, not to consecrate him in your life, is to make him out to be ordinary. Just one of the political factors. A religious front. But not unique. 
to make God out to be ordinary or unimportant or indifferent or incapable or even helpless is the vilest kind of blasphemy. So how dare we fear what others fear? And similarly, to fear the Lord is to acknowledge God's ultimate and final significance. He is God. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. He works long-term. And He is our judge. So the fear of the Lord, we're told repeatedly in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. Such fear is not terror, but there is a kind of weighty dread. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's relational. It acknowledges that God is God. And God is not simply a sort of souped-up human being, just like us, only more so. He is himself uniquely God. The Lord is the, my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The psalmist asks rhetorically in Psalm 27. Or in chapter 11, which we read briefly yesterday, verse 3. When the shoot comes up from the stump of Jesse, the promise of Christ himself, we read 11.3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? In other words, Isaiah is not to act like the Judeans who fail to make God the most central fact of their existence. Indeed, all the pronouns in verses 12 and 13 are in the second person plural. In other words, God instructs not only Isaiah the prophet as an individual, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy, but to all who will hear his words, do not all of you, all of you, call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. And y'all, do not fear what they fear, do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one y'all are to regard as holy, all of you. Do you see? It's not just the individual. It's the people of God corporately who are called not to act like the people of God nominally, those who claim to be God's covenant community but have no living, vital, fear-laden faith in the sovereign sweep of God. Verses 14 and 15. Ultimately, sooner or later, people discover that God is either their sanctuary, 14a, or a stumbling block that trips them up. One of the two. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah, and he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That imagery of, of God or of Christ, the Messiah, as a rock that is either our cornerstone or a stumbling block, keeps recurring in several scriptures, not least Isaiah, but also Psalm 118 and elsewhere, and is picked up repeatedly in the New Testament, not least by the Apostle Peter. Many will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Verse 16, bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. Some take that to mean bind it up and make it private. 
It's for the elect. I don't think that's quite the point. Bind it up and hold it close to yourself. If you are amongst God's people, those for whom you want to sanctify God in your heart, to consecrate Him in your life, then bind God's testimony, bind His revelation, bind the law closely to you so that you, you, you never run away from it. You hear the word and voice of God. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in Him. You see, here is theology that goes beyond the racial heritage and discerns between a remnant that knows God and fears him and a racial community that does not know God at all. In verse 18, the children the Lord has given me could be a way of referring to Isaiah's disciples. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me, but I suspect not. After all, elsewhere in Isaiah, the prophet has introduced his own children. Shear Jashub, chapter 7, verse 3, a remnant will return. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Have you noticed in recent years there are a lot of Christian families in the West that are choosing Old Testament names for their kids? Josiah, Ezekiel. Daniel, I've yet to meet one who calls his son Mayor Shallow Hashbaz. <laughs> Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. For a start, I'm pretty sure it's hard to call a Mayor Shallow Hashbaz to breakfast. Mayor Shallow Hashbaz. I suspect they called him Baz for short. But nevertheless, these children are symbol-laden figures in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so when, Ezekiel, when Isaiah here says, here am I and the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel. Signs and symbols because they have symbol-laden names. The Lord is coming back beyond the uh, exile. Uh, the, the people will return after the judgment of the exile. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells in Mount Zion. I suspect that this is an Isaiah equivalent to Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my symbol-laden children, we will serve the Lord. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. So what characterizes this darkness and gloom? It's fearing what is fickle and feeble. We can start fearing cultural trends. We can start fearing political big mouths. We can start fearing loss of order and civility. We can start fearing the disappearance of the culture with which we have become most comfortable. And then we live our lives just like everybody else. We meet at the pub or at a cup of tea. And what we talk about is very much in terms of what everybody else is talking about. Our chair wouldn't say the word, but I'll say it. Brexit. <laughs> and I don't really care whether you're for it or against it. 
I'm sure you can make good arguments on both sides. What I am sure about is that it's very complicated and it's tied up in Ireland with peculiar border questions as well. And I, I'm sure that some people have strong feelings one way or the other because they don't want to see the troubles return. And it's natural to recognize all of these things, of course, of course, but do not fear them. God is not asleep. He's still sovereign. Isaiah faced far worse political challenges in his own day. And in due course, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And still God says, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. The Lord is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. None of that is easy. It's just simply fundamental. So, we are not to fear what is fickle and feeble. We are not to trust, number two, what is futile and false, verses 19 to 22. 19, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? You see, the sad reality is that when people forsake genuine revelation, many do not become narrowly secular, that is, committed to philosophical materialism. They become hopelessly superstitious. This is an interesting time in Western culture. Very large numbers of people live by consulting their astrology charts every day. Some read tarot cards. They swear by the advice of gurus, read tea leaves. They go to seances. But it's more than that. I remember recently trying to take a group of students through the Greek text of Hebrews chapter 1, where the whole argument is that Jesus is better than the angels. And the students asked, so how is that important for us today? I mean, does anybody doubt that? But then I started ticking off the TV programs, touched by an angel. Do you have that one over here? Are you afflicted by that one? <laughs> and, and numerous other um, visitations from the recently deceased. It, it's not just Jimmy Stewart uh, at, at Christmas. N nowadays, it's, it's part of a world that is imaginative. It's, it, it, nobody's uh, coming right out and saying, that's what I really believe, but deep down, there are an awful lot of people who are thinking along those sorts of terms. Magic. I'm quite a spiritual person, you know. I wear a bracelet on my wrist whose crystals pulse with my vibrations and give me a great deal of energy. It's no better and no worse than astrology, roughly the same category of superstition. Do, do, do you see? But it's not rare. It's, it's everywhere. All an attempt to know and control the future That's what an awful lot of this is about. Wanting to know and control the future. Because you don't want to see what God says about the future. 
or rest secure in his control, you want to be in charge. And if you can just get the tarot cards right, maybe you'll win. And besides, I do believe in Jesus. I mean, that's a great backup, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to see what the charts say. Uh, I'm Copernicus myself. Uh, I'd like to see what, uh, what, what, what that means for today. I, I don't really believe any of that sort of thing, you know, but it was interesting today. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, that was a, a typical vision of how the dead speak through seances in the ancient world. You find it amongst the Hittites and amongst the Assyrians and so on. They, 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 they mutter and, and whisper in seances and so on. And the dead speak. The necromancers all have their shot. Should not a people inquire of their God instead? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? You see, it's not just that it's negative because it's superstitious. It's negative because it displaces God. It testifies a, a non-trust of the living God. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. This word of Scripture, this word of God's self-disclosure in the covenant, and finally in Christ himself. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. This is increasingly a culture that curses God. People begin by thinking about God in terms of the question of evil. God is a hatchet genocidal maniac. I've heard that in more university missions than I can shake a stick at. Then they will look toward the earth and see only darkness and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. There used to be a song about looking for love in all the wrong places. Here's a depiction of people who look for security in all the wrong places. Ours is a fear-mongering age. So here are the two massive sins typical of Isaiah's age and that come and resurface today. On the one hand, fearing what is fickle and feeble, and on the other, trusting what is futile and false. And over against all of that, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, there is a vision of light and hope. Verse 1 is transitional. Nevertheless, despite all this anticipation of gloom, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That is the two tribes that are dominant in the Galilee region. In the past, he humbled them, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Already in the first century, Gal in the time of Jesus, but even earlier in the 10th century, in the time of David, 
Galilee of the Gentiles was known to be a strange mix of Aramaeans and Hebrews and Mesopotamians and Canaanites and Hittites. It, 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 it was never sort of a, a pure group, do, do, do you see? It, it was always Galilee of the Gentiles, and therefore it tended to be looked down a bit, um, uh, down on a bit from, from a Jerusalem perspective, where the temple is, do you see? But the light is going to shine out of Galilee, we're told. Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, that is the Mediterranean Sea, all the way from the sea through to Lake Galilee and beyond, the Decapolis, all ground of multinational peoples. And there, what do we find? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And of course, Jesus himself picks up these words from Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what our passage now gives us 700 years before the coming of Christ is an anticipatory portrait of the light dawning with a new king, the dawning of the kingdom in the coming of the king, and light and life pulsing through this Gentile enclave. So what does the prophet foresee? Two things in particular. First, God's promise of transformation. Verses 2 to 5. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That is over against the gloom, now is the light. On those living in land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. In other words, here is a depiction not of death and of stolen harvests and trampled fields as the Assyrians march through the land, but now there is rich harvest and now there is victory instead of plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat at the time of Gideon, in other words, the prophet is looking for an historical example, at the time of Midian's defeat, you now have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. That is, war itself will one day cease and all the instruments of war will come to an end. The warrior's boots and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And of course, this too is all in anticipation of the vision that we glanced at yesterday in chapter 11. Do you, do you see, there is in Isaiah, we'll look at this a little more later in the week, an anticipation of the Lord's blessing on the people in exile, bringing them back. An anticipation of the Lord's blessing on Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of the city. An anticipation of the Lord's blessing on Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple itself, which has yet to be destroyed with, as of this writing. But it's going to be destroyed and will be rebuilt. 
And then an anticipation of the king's coming, the coming of the Davidic king. And with him comes light and light, light and life and hope and forgiveness of sin. And ultimately, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth introduced explicitly in Isaiah chapter 65. In other words, with the coming of the king, there is light and life and hope. And thus there will be justice and integrity and truth of the Messiah, of whom I'll say more in a moment. He will reign on David's throne, verse 7, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He establishes the righteousness of his people by justifying them through his own death. He establishes the righteousness of his people by transforming them and making them hungry for holiness. He establishes the righteousness of his people by glorifying them on the last day so that as Revelation 21 and 22 put it, there is no more death or sorrow or sickness or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The king is coming. And we are expected to live in the light of that anticipation. That's precisely why we do not fear what others fear. It's precisely why we are not embroiled in the temporary lunacies of our age. It's not that we are detached from them. It's just that we put them against the backdrop of transcendent, spectacular, glorious transformation. We think in terms of eternal life, eternal transformation. The means of this glorious transformation is spectacular. Verses 6 and 7, a child is born. A son is given. Already there is the anticipation of a human hero as early as Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman will bring about the defeat of Satan. Of course, the doctrine of the Trinity has not been teased out there yet. The doctrine of the Incarnation is not spelled out. But it won't be too long before we read, the Word, God's self-expression, was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, a human being, and lived for a while among us, and we have seen His glory. A son is given. Son language has a different set of associations than it has for us today. On crime programs on television and detective whodunits and so on, sonship is established by DNA. I wonder how many crimes on television have been, have been resolved by instantaneous DNA. But that wasn't the association of sonship in the ancient world. In the ancient world, Sonship was bound up with your identity. After all, if your father was a farmer, the chances were overwhelming that you became a farmer. If your mother was a farmer's wife, the chances were overwhelming you became a farmer's wife. I won't try an experiment here, but I have tried it elsewhere to see how many people in this room are doing at your age vocationally what your parents did at the same age. It's never more than about 
Whereas in the ancient world, it was 90, 95%. So you were identified vocationally by what your parents did. That's why Jesus is repeatedly referred to in the Gospels as the son of a carpenter because he was perceived to be Joseph's son. And in one remarkable passage in Mark chapter 6, he's, he's actually called the carpenter. Not the carpenter's son, but the carpenter. When one assumes that the old man has died and Jesus took over the business until he entered into his public ministry. Do you, do you see? If you wanted to become a farmer, you didn't go away to agricultural college and come back and inherit. Your father taught you how to farm, how to plant seed and how to irrigate and how to fertilize and how to build fences and so on. You, you learn from your father's hand. So your father established your identity, established your education, established your work habits, and eventually you, you, you carried on the family line. And because of this social reality, sonship, therefore, came to carry a lot of different metaphorical associations. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's not saying that if you want to be a Christian, make peace. That's not the point. The point is that God is the supreme peacemaker. So if you make peace, you're acting like God. You're acting godishly. You show yourself to be a son of God along this axis of making peace. Do you see? Who's the real son of Abraham? The real son of Abraham is not the one who has Abraham's genes in Scripture. The real son of Abraham in Scripture is the one who has Abraham's faith. He acts like Abraham. Do you, do you see? So by the same token, we come to the establishment of the Davidic king. 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll recall the context, 2 Samuel 7. David wants to build a temple to God. And he thinks he's got God's backing on side. But God says, no, he is not to do that. God will, in fact, establish a house for David. There's a pun there, of course. David wants to establish a house, that is, a temple for God. God says, uh-uh, I'll establish a house, that is, a dynasty for you. The Lord declares to Samuel 7, 11b, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me and my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Do you see? God is the supreme king. To make a Davidide reign the way God reigns means that that Davidide becomes a son of God. It's a functional category. And that's not referring to Jesus quite yet. It's referring to Solomon. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. That's referring to Solomon. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. So God graciously promises a Davidic dynasty by not imposing the same sanction on David's wicked sons as he himself imposed on Saul. That's how the, the Davidic dynasty is established. And then gradually there are more and more 
categories of sonship that are heaped on this anticipation. One of them right here in chapter 9 of Isaiah, a text that we become familiar with every Christmas when we listen to Handel's Messiah plays from our recording devices. What do we read? To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The son of 2 Samuel 7:14, The son who is the divine king. But now it's not just that he's in David's line, though he is in David's line. As we'll see, we're told he will reign on David's throne in verse 7. But there's more. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. There is our confidence. There is our hope. That's why we are not to fear as others fear. At the end of the day, I may not have much clarity in my own mind as to which way Brexit's going to go, but I know who's going to have the last word. I know who reigns at the end of the age. I know who's in charge when there's a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. I know when he comes, there will be massive transformation. And even now, he is reigning. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, we are told. He is reigning and brings about through the gospel transformation of uh, the new covenant age. He brings about transformed lives, transformed categories, transformed nations, transformed families, all in anticipation of the ultimate transformation at the end of the age. Wonderful counselor in a book that regularly mocks human wisdom and human counsel. Mighty God, a pair of words which together are always used to refer to God himself in the Old Testament. In other words, despite some liberal translations, this does not mean mighty hero, it means mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace at a time of war and struggle. And after all, we are told he is God with us, Emmanuel. Let me conclude. We must see that there are two further truths that spring from this passage. Number one, God's timing is on a far larger scale than ours. We want all of our blessings to come within our lifetimes, preferably within the next decade, better yet, within the next two years. But this promise of the Davidic king, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, comes 700 years later. And even when he does come, lo and behold, he dies as a slaughtered sacrifice. And the church runs for a couple of thousand years before it's really a worldwide phenomenon. And we're still waiting for the consummation, the final transforming consummation of all things. God's timing involves sweeping movements through church history whereas we want to look at everything from the perspective of how it impinges on us. But it calls for a walk of faith to trust Christ on the long haul and wait to see how God's plannings, God's timings, and so on, are for the good of his blood-bought people and the glory of his own dear Son. Finally, God 
has fulfilled these promises already in the coming of Christ Jesus. But the consummation of these predicted blessings is only here in measure. This should not issue in passivity or in naivete. Consider one more passage and we're done. Acts chapter 4. Here the church is beginning to face its first whiff of persecution. Peter and John have been threatened. They haven't been beaten up yet. That takes place in the next chapter. On their release, we're told, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people, that is to fellow Christians, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. In prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. Have you ever noticed that worldwide, whether then in the first century or today, when Christians are persecuted, one of the first things they confess is the sovereignty of God? It takes people to be living in comfortable times to start questioning God's sovereignty. When you're living under the gun, you confess God's sovereignty. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one. Quoting Psalm 2, of course. And then two remarkable verses. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Second verse, verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So was the action of the conspirators, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, the people of Israel, was their action wicked? Of course it was wicked. It was foul beyond words. Even at the political level, it was, it was a kangaroo court. It was political expedience. It was wicked beyond words. But in one and the same event, God was working behind the scene to accomplish his own good redeeming purposes. Do, do, you, do you see, if you ask the question, why did Jesus die and quote only verse 27 and don't have place for 28? Jesus died as the result of a two-bit conspiracy by a minor Mideastern country on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean in the first century. That's why Jesus died. Nothing about atonement. Nothing about Jesus, the Passover lamb. N nothing about forgiveness of sins. He died as a result of a conspiracy. But if you look at verse 28 and don't look at verse 27, then you might conclude, well, he died because this was God's plan, which is true enough. But you might foolishly conclude, he died because it was God's plan and therefore it was all a good thing. If putting Jesus on a cross is a good thing, then everything that happens is a good thing because Jesus is in charge of everything. In other words, in one and the same event, you see evil being done and prosecuted and God's good and wise plan nevertheless working through the same events. 
God stands behind evil in such a way that the evil is always attributed to secondary causalities. In this case, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the leaders of the Jews. But it's evil. But God stands behind good in such a way that the good is always attributable to him. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because in God's mind, he was slain before the foundation of the world to bring about our redemption. That, that's why. But that doesn't stop the fact that there was a lot of evil intent. That's why, for example, in, Isaiah chapter, in, in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, Joseph can turn to his brothers with respect to his own uh, suffering and say, you intended it for evil when you sold me into slavery, but God intended it for good. In one and the same event. So we must look at our times and recognize evil for what it is in the light of what Scripture says is evil and still recognize that God is in charge and trust Him because to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on His shoulders. He shall reign on the throne of His father David. Of the increase of His kingdom there will be no end. And He is called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Amen and amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.